Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, well, that's where we'll begin. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The text says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Tonight we're coming to the conclusion of this uh, uh, little uh, study here called The Golden Chain of Five Links, which is, it has been historically known. These five tremendous doctrinal truths that point to the security of our salvation in Christ, each link uh, forged in heaven, each link describing something that God has done, each link being a divine affirmation of our eternal security and our eternal safety in Christ. Uh, the five links were grouped into two, uh, two groups. Uh, the first group was foreknowledge and predestination. Uh, those are two, the two great uh, doctrinal truths that um, uh, concerning God's eternal decrees or God's eternal counsel, things that he did, things that he determined before time began. Uh, the last group that we're going to look at tonight are justification and glorification. And the middle term is called, uh, which kind of links the, the first pair with the last pair. So there are two kinds of calling biblically. There's an outward call and an inward call. The outward call goes to all men. It's a general or universal call for uh, issued to all men to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ for salvation. But most men don't respond to that call, as uh, we have studied. Uh, most who hear the general call to the gospel refuse it. They refuse to come to God. They refuse to come to God through Christ and find mercy to receive a grace and forgiveness for their sin. Uh, because the natural man, for the natural man, there's no message that he hates more than to be told that he's a lost sinner, that he's hopelessly lost, hopelessly separated from God, guilty before God, with no way back and nothing that he can do to change his position. The natural man hates that message. And the natural man violently opposes that message. Because deep down inside, every natural man thinks he is a good man. Uh, that's why they often, natural people often point to other people. They say, well, you know, I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as, and then they point to somebody else in the room, right? And, but what they are, what they fail to understand is the other people in the room aren't the standard. Uh, they're not the standard. Other people in the room aren't the standard of holiness. God is. God's holiness. God's righteousness. And, and again, to be told that you're a sinner, that you're vile, that you're wretched, that you're uh, uh, guilty before God. Again, the, the natural man hates that. He recoils at that message. He, it just enrages him. And then when he's told that he has to be born again, that he has to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the only way to salvation, uh, again, for him, it's utter nonsense. It's utter nonsense. But to the effectually called, to, to those who hear the inward call of God, uh, God, the gospel of grace, that first sets before us the bad news, the reality of our condition and our standing before holy god uh, these truths have become dear to us uh, these truths again as natural men we once ourselves fought against but now we embrace these truths because these are truths about who we were uh, not truth now about who we are in christ we who have been effectually called have now come to see that nothing but the person of the lord jesus christ and him alone can deal with the issue of our sin and we see that in him we have a righteousness or the righteousness that we need to have uh, right standing before God, to have peace with God, to be forgiven, to be adopted into the family of God. So the inward effectual call of God, again, is heard by those whom God in his mercy and grace has regenerated. 
those whom he has brought to new life. As God has created within those who are effectually called a principle of spiritual life. And now that principle of spiritual life that God has planted within us causes us now to see everything differently. And as a result of God's regenerating work in our lives, we're willing to see the truth about ourselves. We're willing to admit the fact that we are indeed sinners, that we are hopeless, we're helpless, we're separated from God and apart from God and apart from Christ. And for us who've been the recipients of God's grace, awakened from the dead spiritually, uh, we have seen what he has done in order uh, that he might reconcile us to himself. And we respond by faith to the great offer of mercy, uh, the great offer of forgiveness of sin through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, found in the gospel. And those whom God has regenerated, again, believe the truth about God's Son. They believe the truth about his person. They believe the truth about his incarnation. They believe the truth of his all-atoning, substitutionary, sacrificial death. And they not only believe in him in totality, but they love him. They now have a relationship with him. They now live in the power of his resurrection, and they rejoice in him. Those who hear the inward call of the gospel are not smarter than those who don't. Those who hear the inward call of the gospel are not more religious or more pious than those who don't. Those who hear the inward call of God are not more deserving or more beautiful than those who don't hear. Those who hear and understand the saving, transforming call of the gospel are nothing more than just objects of God's grace. They're nothing more than beneficiaries of God's mercy and his great love. And there's absolutely nothing in them of themselves personally impressive about them on an individual level or on a group level. Again, they're just nothing more than recipients of God's kindness, his grace, his love. And again, those who hear and those who respond to the inward call of God, they stand amazed at God's mercy. Amen? They stand amazed at his mercy, amazed at his grace towards them. That God would see fit to call them into, uh, out of rebellion and out of their sin uh, against him, to be in relationship with him and to be in union with him and, and, and united with his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who hear the effectual call are always amazed by God's grace. And they rejoice always in God's mercy and kindness, and they always praise and ever praise him for the eternal love of God towards them. And when they sing, they sing with full voice like you do, right? They sing with full voice, full volume. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's all God's kindness. Now there's a warning, however, that Peter gives uh, concerning the call to make sure that your call is true. Because there are some people who believe that they've been called of God and some people who actually think that they have responded But the truth is, biblically, by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're self-deceived. They've only superficially responded to the outward call of the gospel. They might be members of a church. They might be outwardly moral. They might be uh, even involved in Bible study or maybe even Bible study teachers. Uh, They demonstrate a certain level of Bible knowledge. But they've not been born again. They've not been born by God. They don't look like Christ. They don't look like Christ in their attitudes and their actions. They don't really love Christ. And they don't fully obey him. And they profess with their lips a knowledge of God, but the habitual practice of their life is really worldly. It's of the devil. It again, gives evidence of the fact that they're not called. They mentioned this group this morning. They're out of Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 21, the Lord Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the warning from Peter in 2 Peter 1.10 is, he says, Brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Because listen to me. The man or the woman who has been effectually called by God through Christ looks like Christ. He looks like Christ. Because those who are called by God and respond to that effectual call are united with Christ. And they're in the process of looking more and more like him always. They're being conformed ever to the image of Christ. Again, they act like him. They don't act like the world. Tremendous truth that a lot of professing Christianity has no grasp on whatsoever. Most of professing Christianity, the understanding of truth, doesn't get any further than we believe in Jesus. And as I've told you numerous times, you go to the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 19, I would bring to your attention the fact the devil believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. And when teaching of truth never gets any farther than believing in Jesus, all you have is a demonic faith. You don't have a saving faith. And that's something the world needs to know. And again, the world, the words of Christ. The Bible is there for our encouragement. The Bible is there for warning to make sure that you're not self-deceived. Now tonight, we're going to turn our attention to the next link here in this great golden chain. And it's justification. That's the term. Again, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined, verse 30, for those whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. Now, we're not going to spend a great deal of time on this because we've done so many times uh, in the past through this study and others. But let me just say a couple things about justification. Let me remind you first off that justification is the very opposite of condemnation. All right, that's why at the top of that chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, there's now therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus should get everybody to stand up and cheer, right? Because there's no condemnation in Christ. And when a person is in a wrong relationship to God, a wrong relationship to the law, he's condemned. Uh, Again, he's pronounced guilty by the judge, uh, by the judge, the person that's condemned because he is guilty. But again, for those who are truly called, the Christian is no longer under condemnation. Again, there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So when God effectually calls a person to himself, that person's justified. Removed from the state of condemnation into a place of justification. Romans 5.18 says, As though through one transgression it would be Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men. So even through one act of righteousness, that would be Christ's, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, even through the one obedience of the one many were made righteous. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, justification is a legal term. It's a forensic term. Uh, It's a term that belongs in the realm of the court. And justification means to declare just or declare righteous. So, in biblical justification, the supreme judge of the universe declares the Christian, the called one, not guilty and just. In right relationship with him, in right relationship with uh, the law, the law. And I think it's important that we emphasize the fact that when a man's justified, it doesn't mean that he's just been forgiven. It does include, it does include uh, forgiveness, obviously, but justification is much bigger than just forgiveness. Because justification means that God declares us entirely guiltless. Justification means that God declares us entirely guiltless, and he looks at us who are justified as if we've never sinned. And not only that, when God declares us just, he looks on us as if we are clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
That's the meaning of justification. Declared guiltless and clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So by being declared justified, we enter into a new standing before God. And again, this truth about justification being much more than uh, just forgiven is uh, points to the fact that if we were just merely forgiven, then we'd be left in the same situation we were previously without any real uh, change in our relationship to God. And I think that's a key point for us to understand. To understand. If justification were just forgiveness of sin, then a man could sin at any moment, then he would again become what? Guilty before God, right? He'd fall out of relationship, fall out of fellowship with God. Then he'd have to go through the whole process of getting forgiven again. So if justification were just just stopped at us being forgiven, then our entire lives would be nothing more than just falling in and out of relationship with God. Temporarily in relationship, then out of relationship. In and out, right? Uh, before we sin, and then the whole process starts all over again. So it would be this kind of back and forth, back and forth thing. In sin, out of sin, in relationship, out of relationship. Forgiven, not forgiven. And then the whole process just goes on over and over again. But we can be thankful to the Apostle Paul who lays it out very clearly, clearly for us throughout the book of Romans, obviously, in this portion we're looking at now. And thankful to God for impressing upon us the fact it's really a staggering truth that justification is more than just forgiveness. Justification places us into an entirely new relationship with God. Because justification completely and forever changes our status and our standing before God. We are now in what category? There is now, therefore, no condemnation. We are now in the no condemnation category. And even when we sin, because we're justified, we're clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and nothing can affect our standing before him because God, the supreme ruler of the universe, the supreme judge of the universe, has declared all who's place their faith in Christ as just. And again, no longer who they once were, now they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, They have his righteousness, and that that covers all of our sin, past, present, and future. So again, justification is a once-for-all declaration of God the Father concerning our status before him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Throughout the remainder of that fifth chapter, we went through it a while back, but the apostle repeats that truth over and over again, and he works that out for us, and works out for us the fact that those who are justified are now in Christ. And again, he shows to us all that means. So again, justification is much more than just forgiveness of sin. That's part of it, but justification places us in Christ, in union with Christ incorporated into Christ, part of him, uh, transformed, renewed, restored, freed from sin's bondage. Now, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. Again, completely transformed, alive to God in Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Nothing so robs us of the joy of salvation and assurance as a failure to realize the full extent of justification. It's a great statement. I mean, you talk to people all the time. Are you saved? I think so. I hope so. Maybe. And you talk to people, can you lose your salvation? And I hear it a lot. People go, I I, I don't know. Maybe. You know, because they don't understand what justification means. They don't understand salvation. So people live in this kind of yo-yo world. And they have no confidence of their salvation. Part of Romans chapter 8, as I've told you from the beginning, is to have assurance of our salvation. That's why he writes. 
So how does it happen? How does God pull this off, this justification? How, how is it that we who are unrighteous are now declared righteous? Now, first of all, you have to understand this is what God does. This is what God does. This is what all, all is done by God and God himself. How do you know that? And I read the text, like always, right? Verse 30, these whom he predestined, he called God, right? He called, those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he also what? Justified. So this is God's work. No man does it by himself or on his own. No man stands just before God. No man stands in his natural condition and right relationship before God. We are all unrighteous, right? We understand that. Romans chapter 3. Right? Romans 3 and 10. There's none righteous, not even one. No man has the ability to stand before God. No man can justify himself. No man can do anything to justify himself by anything he does. Romans 3 and 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No man can justify himself, and no man can perfectly keep the law, right? How are you doing? I'm trying. I'm doing pretty good this week. So I think I'm good with God. That's not what the Bible says that causes our right standing before God. And a lot of people who call themselves Christians think like that. All the law does is condemn us. All the law does is expose our sinfulness. All the law does is show us that we've fallen short of God's perfect standard. So for justification to happen, it has to be entirely done by God himself, apart from any work that we might do or any merits we might possess or think that we possess. Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Now the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor, but what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as what? Righteousness. Right? It's tremendous truth. Romans 4 and 5. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So again, who does God justify? The righteous? The ones that are working hard? The ones that are good people? No. He justifies the ungodly. Christ himself, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And until a person confesses the fact that they are indeed sinners, they are ungodly, they're not a candidate for salvation. And they're most certainly not a candidate for justification. Because people who won't admit the fact that they're sinners are still trusting in themselves and their own goodness. Paul said the very same thing in Romans 5, 6. He says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps... For a good man, someone would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Christ died for sinners. So again, justification is entirely and exclusively the action of God. Whereby God himself declares the sinner in right relationship both to the demands of the law and to himself and his person. And God sees us as clothed in the righteousness of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does God do that? How can he declare sinners such as us not guilty when, in fact, we really are guilty? How can he do that? How can he declare us righteous when we have none? I mean, is this some kind of a game or some kind of legal fiction? And the answer to that is, of course not. God justifies men in a manner so that he might not ever violate his justice or violate his holiness. But how does he do it? 
God justifies men who, by grace alone, through faith alone, believe in the person of Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and for their justification. It's always the same. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way you're getting to heaven. Only through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? God justifies guilty men as he declares them not guilty and perfectly righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So justification by grace is through faith in Christ. Therefore, number one, I'm going to give you four points along the way here. If you can dig them out, that's good for you. I'll I'll try to give you a number out of them just to give you a heads up. But justification is by grace through faith. Therefore, number one, God's grace is the source of our justification. How does he do it? It's God's grace. None of us have any righteousness. None of us declare ourselves uh, just. None of us can work our way that place to that position. Salvation and right standing before God is only by God himself. Only by the exercise of his great grace and his great mercy upon us. And he freely bestows on us his undeserved kindness as a gift. As a gift. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, verse 24, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. If justification is going to happen, it's going to happen by God. He's the source for justification. So, number two, if God's grace is the source of our justification, then the ground of our justification, or the reason that God can be gracious towards us, is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to look there, since I'm just going to refer to a couple times here, but back in chapter 3 of Romans. The reason, the ground, is Christ, the finished work of Christ. Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, verse 24, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And we talk about this word a lot because it's one of my favorite words, right? It's a wonderful word. It speaks to the fact of the finished work of Christ, that God in the finished work of Christ removes his anger from us. God himself removes his personal wrath towards us as sinners. It's interesting that neither the word nor the concept, I mean, when's the last time you heard anybody except from a pulpit use the word wrath, and you probably don't hear it from many pulpits except this one. When's the last time just in the conversation, well, you know, God's a God of wrath, and he's going to judge us all for our sin, and in the culture, we better be fearful. When's the last time you heard that? I mean, we, we don't like that word. The world doesn't like that word. God is a God of wrath. So you hear about God being a God of love, but you don't hear God about being a God of wrath. So the concept of God's personal wrath is not very popular anywhere, uh, uh, even amongst many preachers. But nevertheless, that's what the Bible uses. And the Bible uses that term. And unless there's a biblical reason not to use that term, we should probably just use that term and understand what it means. God removes, God has displayed Jesus Christ publicly as a propitiation. What, is, what does the whole thing mean? Now, the word, the word wrath is orge in the Greek. And wrath is, the, the Greek word is because God is holy, he expresses his settled anger, uh, his active opposition to everything that is evil. God's holy and everything else is evil. So wrath really is the divine reaction against evil. It brings judgment and punishment, both uh, in time and then in, in the future. 
Go back to chapter 1. I just want to make sure that you see it. I'm not making the whole thing up here. Right? God's angry with sin. God's angry with sinners. God is personally offended. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God. There it is, that word, right? For the wrath of God is revealed. And really it's the idea of uh, being revealed, continually being revealed. It's present tense. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So God's wrath, God's divine anger towards sin and sinners is continually being revealed, manifest, put on display, uh, disclosed, made known. And if you go on and read the chapter, we've talked about it a lot. You know, God gave them over, verse 24, God gave them over, uh, uh, verse 26. Verse 28, God gave them over, right? Depraved minds, sexual perversions of all kind, depraved minds, exactly the culture we're living in under the wrath of God, uh, and the wrath of God's abandonment with minds that don't function. We talk about it all the time. You know, one, more, one stupid decision follows an exponentially more stupid decision because people have depraved minds that don't work. So God is angry, his wrath. And, and God's wrath really refers to his settled, determined indignation against sin. It's not some kind of momentary blow-up. It's not an emotional, uh, uncontrolled uh, anger like uh, would be the word thumos, uh, which uh, we as human beings are prone to. One writer says this. He says, God's attributes are balanced in divine perfection. If he had no righteous anger and wrath, he would not be God, just as surely as he would not be God without his gracious love. He perfectly hates just as he perfectly loves perfectly loving righteousness and perfectly hating evil. The writer says one of the great tragedies of modern Christianity, including much of evangelicalism, is the failure to preach and teach the wrath of God and the condemnation it brings upon all with unforgiven sin. He goes on and he says, the truncated sentimental gospel that is frequently presented today falls far short of the gospel that Jesus and the apostle Paul proclaimed. He says, many Psalters from the late 19th century used to include hymns that emphasized the wrath of God, just as much as the book of Psalms itself emphasizes his wrath. But tragically today, few hymns or other Christian songs reflect that important biblical focus. Well, you know what? I, I don't like wrath. So can, can we just all take our pins out and cross that word out? Let's create a new word, Right? That's what the world does, what the culture does. That's what preachers do that don't preach the word. But the scripture, Old Testament as well as New Testament, consistently emphasizes God's righteous wrath against those who rebel against him and against those who scoff at him. The text says God will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Psalm 2. The psalmist in Psalm 2 says, Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Let's talk about this for a moment. <laughs> Let's have a conversation. You know what? doesn't matter what you think. doesn't matter what you believe about God's wrath. What you ought to do is get your belief in line with the truth proclaimed, and you need to be fearful if you're not a believer. Because his wrath may be soon kindled against those who said, Lord, Lord, look at all these wonderful things we've done. Look how we've manifested power and, and spiritual gifts. And he says, don't pray to me because I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did I read someplace 
about love and, and obedience going together? Maybe this morning out of the idea. Did you shake your head? You were there. Good. Out of John, right? You need to obey. He becomes the source of salvation for those who obey him, right? Not for the disobedient. Now, again, just to point out something overly obvious, but to point it out anyway, the wrath of God is not a human, uh, not a human discovery. Right? It's something that God has told about himself that he has made known as a point of divine revelation to make sure that people understand how serious he is about sin. And the revelation of the wrath of God, again, is essential to understanding the gospel of grace. Because the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates the extent and to the measure of God's most holy anger and judgment against sin. Because the truth is, forgiveness of sin is no cheap gesture on the part of God. It was costly. Costly as the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ would be utterly meaningless and needless without the fact that God is personally angered by sin and his wrath is upon us. And unless there's something to be saved from, there's no issue or no purpose of speaking about salvation. But there's something to be saved from. First Thessalonians 1.10, God, God's Son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, he is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1.10. The Bible actually speaks of a coming day uh, when men will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks to fall on us. Revelation 6, 16, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's the great day of God's coming judgment. Verse 17 says, in that day no one will be able to stand. And those who oppose God in his dear son, Revelation fourteen ten says, shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength of the cup of his anger. You can't get the good news right until you understand who you are before God. And the bad news you have to come to an understanding of. There really is something to be fearful of. The fact that you live in a universe with a holy God. Now the reason that God can be gracious to us is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ, again back in Romans uh, 3, says that he became a propitiation in his blood. God diverts his anger, his divine wrath away from sinners and directs it towards his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, uh, verse 24 there at the end, Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, the public display of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as a propitiation is at the cross. Romans 5, 9 says, Much the more having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So again, justification is much more than just forgiveness of sin. Justification uh, is much more than just amnesty, uh, much more than pardon for sin. From amnesty, we get our word amnesia, and it means forgetfulness. But in biblical justification, there's no forgetfulness on the part of God. Rather, in biblical justification, there is an execution of divine justice. Because God can't overlook sin, sin has to be punished. 
And God has punished sin in the body of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has transferred or imputed to Christ our sin, our guilt. And Christ becomes our substitute, our sin bearer. And because Christ bore our sin upon Calvary's cross, divine justice is served. All the righteous demands of the law have been perfectly met in Christ. And then God imputes to us or God credits to us the perfect righteousness of our substitute, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, favorite verse of mine. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how it happens, through substitution. Now, imputation means that God means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, so he reckons it to our account. And again, it's essential in the gospel to understand that. God's declaration of our justification as righteousness before him is not based on our actual condition of righteousness or our actual condition of holiness before him, but it's rather based on the actual righteousness and the holiness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just put it in the Put a little mark in the margin of your Bible and just write with a, a pen. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. We're sinners. We've all sinned. We're all going to continue to sin. We're all conscious of the fact that we're guilty. All conscious of the fact that we're not innocent. We're not perfect. But God in his mercy, by grace, while not violating his justice or his holiness, has given to the one who believes and trusts him and trusts Christ alone, Christ's perfect righteousness. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What do you have to do to get salvation? You have to believe what God has done through Christ. Now, Roman Catholicism uh, teaches wrongly that justification changes us internally, actually makes us more holy. Whereas a reformed Protestant doctrinal understanding of justification doesn't change us internally because, again, it's not based on any merit or goodness in us, but it's solely given to us, again, as a gift. Based on God's mercy and grace through Christ, through the finished substitutionary work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ, not by our works. John Stott says this, he says, when God justifies sinners, he is not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they are not sinners at all, after all. He is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law, because he himself in his son has borne the penalty for their law-breaking. It's what God has done through Christ. So number one, God's grace is the source of our justification. Number two, the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross is the ground of our justification. And number three, the means of our justification is faith. Again, if you're not, you should be there in that Romans 3 passage. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, verse uh, um, verse 24, right, uh, in, in his blood through faith, or verse 25, in his blood through faith. I mean, again, Paul repeats uh, what he just said. Look back up at verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for Christ 
uh, faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's no distinction. All of sin, all fall short of the glory of God. So we're justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. So Paul says, look, we don't have any, we can't do anything. We can't merit our salvation. We can't merit our justification. We receive the propitiation. We receive what God has done through Christ. We receive God personally turning away his personal wrath and anger by pouring about pouring out his anger and wrath upon the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. God in his kindness turns away, God in his justice turns away his wrath from us, places it upon Christ, and we who believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by substitution through faith, what Christ has done belongs to us. So faith is the channel. Faith is the channel by which justification becomes ours. Faith is the means by which God forgives or removes his condemnation from us. And while faith, as a term, is not explicitly mentioned uh, in explicitly mentioned in the chain of salvation, it's implied. Because genuine saving faith is the fruit of regeneration. Genuine saving faith is the fruit of God's effectual call upon a person's life. And again, we demonstrate the fact that we have been effectually called and regenerated when we, by faith, repent of our sin and turn to God through Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, genuine saving faith also looks like something. It's made up of three elements, and probably you've heard this before. There's an element of knowledge, an element of conviction, and an element of trust. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. So first, knowledge means that we know Christ. We know who he is. We understand his person. We understand his work. We know him on a personal level. We know what he has done for us on Calvary's cross in our stead. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hear by the word of Christ. Right? We understand that truth Next, there's an element of conviction. And that speaks to the fact that not only must we know the truth regarding Christ, we must believe that that, true, that truth is true. We must believe that Christ's very presence in the world is sufficient proof uh, to say that I am a guilty sinner before holy God. We, we must believe and understand that Christ's very present in the world says, I can't do anything to save myself because if I, could, if I could, then God would never have sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer and die as he did. Christ's presence in the world speaks to the fact that we're guilty and Christ's presence in the world speaks to the fact that he is sufficient, completely able to deal with the issue of my sin in total. That he and he alone is exactly suited to deal with my sin and the misery of my guilt and my rebellion against God the Father. So you have knowledge, you have conviction, and then the third element is trust. And that just simply means exactly what it says. I trust him. And him alone to secure my salvation. And again, remembering that faith is received freely from God, by what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ for our salvation, <clears throat> with all personal acts of our own merit excluded. And, and we remember the fact that faith isn't at work, but faith also is a gift of God. It's a necessary element of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It's all of God. And God grants the gift of faith, and we exercise belief, and then we're saved. 
top lady of the hymn writer understood that. Not the labors, <clears throat> not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no rest but no, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's it, Jesus Christ, he's the answer. So God's grace is the source of our justification. The finished work of Jesus Christ is the ground of our justification. The means of our justification is faith. Number four, the effect of our justification, again, is our union with Christ. Spoken about that a lot of times through the series. Those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, are in union, united with the person of Jesus Christ. And because now we're united with the person of Jesus Christ in Christ, we are new creatures, new creations in Christ. We now have victory over sin. We now can enjoy a personal relationship with God through Christ. In Christ, we're children of God. In Christ, we're joined to him and joined into God's family. In Christ, I talked about it this morning, and we're going to continue in our John study, right? We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever, eager, able to do whatever the Father asks us to do, willing. In Christ, we're part of the reign of grace. In, in Christ, we're beneficiaries of the eternal mercies of God himself towards us. I mean, that's a pretty amazing turn of events for a group of people who started out dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath and sons of disobedience, right? That's a pretty big turnaround. When you stop and think of the mercy and the grace and love that God has poured out upon us and placed us in union with himself and in union with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've got to move on to the next link here, but before we do it, I want to give you just kind of a sum, a summary of uh, justification. I found this just a couple of days ago, and I was kind of doing some more study. I want to give you seven words. I, I thought this was good. It comes from a sermon series of Lawson. Steve Lawson did a, a while back through Romans. And I just thought it was really helpful. Seven words. He says, first of all, it's the word immediately. He says, when you're justified, you're justified immediately in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's an immediate transaction, an immediate declaration that God makes. Sanctification is a progressive. Justification is sudden. It's immediate. You sit down lost, you stand up justified. You come to church lost, you leave justified based on faith alone and Christ alone. That's good. Second word, fully. When God justifies someone, he justifies them fully, and no one is more justified than anyone else. Some of us, he says, might be more sanctified experientially, but none of us is more justified than anyone else. We've all come, we all have the same equal standing before God. Third word, freely. Because we're justified freely without cost. There's nothing that we can do to contribute to our salvation or to our justification. It is freely given by God and is freely received by us by faith alone. Fourth word, undeservedly. Undeservedly. God does not justify good people. God justifies bad people. God justifies wretches. God justifies rebels who come to the end of themselves and bow the knee and put their trust in Christ. God justifies thieves on the cross on their deathbed when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Fifth word, vicariously. 
He says we're justified because of the perfect obedience of someone else who stood in our shoes, who stood in our place, who lived the life that we should have been living but have not because of sin. Some other person has lived perfectly under the law in our place and died on the cross in our place. So justification is a matter of the vicarious imputation of the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness to our account. Sixth word, irrevocably. He says once justified, we're always justified. Right? Gavel comes down, judge of the universe, it's over. He says the verdict will never be reversed. God will never rescind his justification. It's a permanent, eternal justification. And then the last word he puts out is perfectly. God gives the perfect righteousness of Christ to us, which gives us perfect standing and acceptance with God. So this is the extraordinary matter that the gavel has come down at the courtroom of heaven, and the supreme judge has declared us to be righteous. That's why verse 33 of the chapter says, Who can bring a charge against God's elect? There's only one, he says, seated on the bench, and all that matters is what he declares. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. All that matters is what God says. And God declares us to be righteous. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? It's a rhetorical question. He says the answer is no one. No one can condemn what God has justified. So he says this. To wrap it up, he says, this is really the heart of the gospel. No matter how sinful your past, no matter how guilty your soul... No matter how defiled your heart, God fully, freely, forever justifies those who are the least deserving when we believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good statement. When God justifies us, it's immediately, fully, freely, undeservedly, vicariously, irrevocably, and perfectly. That's justification. Now one more link to make sure you're over in chapter 8. One last link here. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Verse 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Now we've dealt with this term in the past also several times, right? Those whom he justifies, he's glorified. Now the purpose of salvation, again, we found out a long time ago when the, the study wasn't just about getting us saved. The purpose of salvation is really that we would be conformed to the image of God's dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that implies glorification. Glorification means that we're going to be like Christ, both inwardly and outwardly, including our bodies. Back up in verse 23 of chapter 8. But we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. I'm looking forward to a glorified body. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Just get a little older, you young people, and you'll be going Amen too. So glorification means we're going to be like Him. We're going to be like Christ. Inwardly, outwardly, again, including our bodies. Uh, One day we're going to be fully, freely, completely, totally delivered from every conceivable effect and result of evil and sin. won't happen in this lifetime. It'll happen eventually when Christ returns, we'll be like him, actually glorified. But in the mind of God, it's something that's already completed, because all the terms, I don't know if you noticed, in this golden chain of five links, they're all in the aorist tense, means they're all past tense. 
There are already completed acts in the mind of God, including the last one, our glorification, because they were all foreordained and decreed in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God foreknew us. God predestined us. God called us. God justified. God glorified us. And I can't even tell you how important that is. I mean, I can't even tell you how important that is for you to believe and really believe upon that uh, because all these terms in the aorist tense, give past tense, give us an unshakable assurance of our salvation in Christ. I just feel so bad for people who claim to be Christians, but they struggle with the assurance of their salvation because they just have not been taught well. In the eternal mind of God, everything is a done deal. Everything is completed in Christ. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God and Christ. Everything's already accomplished. And, and if we hear and believe and understand God's grace and God's gospel of grace, uh, we can be certain that we have been foreknown, predestined, effectually called, and justified. And if we believe that, then we have to believe the last one, because they all go together, that we've been glorified. And that nothing can ever prevent that from happening. Because it's all part of God's plan. It's not about you. It's all part of God. It's all part of God's plan. It's irrevocable plan to make his son preeminent. And to make his son the eternal object of men's affections. Now, if you've been paying careful attention, you might notice that there's something not there, maybe. Something. An omission, perhaps. Have you noticed that in that five group, uh, those links of chained together, as it were, sanctification is not there? Why is that? Now, greater minds than I have uh, suggested this, so I'll give you three reasons why it's not mentioned. First, sanctification isn't mentioned because it's not vital to the argument that Paul's putting forward at this point. Because the whole point of Paul's argument is the confidence that we should have in our eternal security in Christ. So Paul focuses on God, the actions of God for our salvation. And listen, because God is acting, our salvation is secure. And sanctification really makes no vital difference in our standing or our status before God, as justification does. Because originally we were under divine wrath, but the moment God declared us just, our whole position before him changed forever. And sanctification really doesn't affect that position. So it's not a vital step in the argument here. Uh, Again, pertaining to uh, the issue of assurance and final perseverance. And on top of that, sanctification is not a step, right? Sanctification is a process. It goes through the entirety of our life. Secondly, these great minds say this. Number two, sanctification is an inevitable consequence of justification. It is an inevitable consequence. Therefore, Paul doesn't mention it. Because at the same moment that a person is justified, sanctification begins. Because this is because of regeneration, given new life, a new nature, a new outlook in life. We who were once dead in trespasses and sins, now we're alive to God in Christ. Uh, we are alive to, to righteousness. And a person, again, who's been truly born again is going to follow this new nature and they're going to act uh, accordingly. And third, the last point here, sanctification is inevitable also from the point of our glorification. It's going to happen. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are now children of God, and as it has not appeared as what we yet shall be, 
We know that when he appears, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I can't even tell you how important that is. Everyone, we're going to be just like him when we see him, will be just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Sanctification is the inevitable uh, uh, process because of our glorification. And I think that tells us that perhaps the most powerful way, the most biblical way, the most proper way to teach on the issue of salvation is not teaching necessarily on certain steps of doing this or methods or doing that or, or whatever, methods of personal holiness, at, although at times that is helpful. I'm not uh, disparaging that point. But I think probably the greatest way to teach, sell, uh, teach sanctification or teach on the issue of sanctification is to, all, to encourage us all to focus and to fix our eyes on Christ. To look on Christ, to look on God in Christ, and, and see what God and Christ have done for us in the issue of salvation. I think the greatest way to preach on holiness of living is to preach Christ and point people to the mercies of God, our Father, and His eternal love for men through Christ. Uh, preach on glorification, preach on justification, uh, because these are going to motivate men to live lives marked by sanctification. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he says this, It is because certain people do not know the truth about justification and glorification as they ought that they are defective in their teaching about sanctification. A man who has his eyes on his future state of glorification will spend time preparing for it. A man who has his eyes on the future state of his glorification will spend time preparing for it. And, and, and if that's not enough for you, I'll give you one from James Boyce that kind of gives you a, a practical where the rubber meets the road. He says, Boyce says this, suppose you're invited to a party with the President of the United States. He says if you're normal, you take some time to get ready. Choosing a special dress or a suit and make what in, making whatever special preparations might be necessary. He says, in the same way, the fact that we are going to be with Jesus Christ and be like him should influence our behavior and life choices. Amen? There it is. Right? These five links of salvation. Part of the eternal plan, purposes of God to exalt himself, to exalt his son, to create a redeemed humanity that might praise and worship Christ in time and forever. And he has declared this great five links together of what he's done so that we might always be certain of our salvation because our salvation is not based on our own efforts, based on the work of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a tremendous look. What wonderful truth of your work and our salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, as always, stand amazed at your grace and your mercy and your kindness to us through Christ. 
The fact that you've done these great things in Christ for us on our behalf to exalt your Son and to bring us to glory. Help us to focus on Christ and help that reality that we're going to be with you and with him one day influence all our behavior and all of our life choices, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.